This is Space 101.1, KMGP, LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Well, good evening. Ah, boy, driving here tonight, seeing the big moon. I think it was full last night, um, that full moon out over Lake Washington here at uh, historic Magnuson Park, site of the old uh, Sandpoint Naval Air Station and the perfect place to broadcast the only live radio show all about Pacific Northwest history. I'm Felix Bunnell. This is Cascade of History. We're here for the next hour live at Space 101.1 FM here in Seattle and streaming at Space101FM.org everywhere else and uh, we're also available as a podcast too um i think i didn't wasn't able to tape the first episode but uh the last three let's see episodes two through four i did tape you can get those at soundcloud or at apple podcasts hopefully getting that onto other platforms as well but you know why would you listen to the podcast when you could listen to the live radio show on a sunday night and as i always explain to our guests when i'm begging people to be on the show with me um you know sunday nights are really inconvenient time for the guests because it's more fun to just sort of relax and sit back and listen to the radio. So it's inconvenient for the guests, but it's great for the audience. To I think there's no better time of the week than kind of late on a Sunday to sort of sit back and listen to people talking about Pacific Northwest history. So that's what we do here on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Uh, we've got a couple of great guests tonight. Kind of an Oregon theme has developed. Um, our first guest who's going to be joining me in just a moment is Doug Kink uh, Crispin. He's a Portland historian, and he's the guy behind OR History, OR History, that is, dot com, and host of the Kick-Ass Oregon History podcast. And I should have checked with management, but I'm pretty sure I can say Kick-Ass Oregon History on the air and not be in trouble. Um, so uh, Doug will be joining us in just a few minutes. We've got some vintage audio. Um, I want to play episode two of The End of the Oregon Trail, which is that 1956 advertising advertorial series from Olympia Beer that marked their 50th anniversary. Really high production values. William Conrad doing all the announcing and telling the story of people making their way, you know, to settle in the great Oregon country and uh, being getting thirsty along the way and needing to invent Olympia Beer in 1896. Um, because of our uh, Portland or Oregon focus of this episode, um, I have some other audio I dusted off earlier tonight from the uh, Columbus Day Storm, October 12th, 1962. We're coming up on the 60th anniversary of that. And KGW, the great Portland radio station, they covered the storm live. They, you know, they were giving updates to people and everything. But then they put on a show about a week later, which I think was mostly a recreation, where they kind of, you know, talked, pretended that they were covering the storm live and kind of showing people how they did it. Got a little highlight from that. I think I want to play that as well. Try and get both those pieces of vintage audio into the show tonight. Um, and then for the second half of the show, we'll be joined by uh, Megan Lalier Barron. She's a curator of exhibitions at the Oregon Historical Society. They're working on an exhibit to mark their 125th birthday, which is next year. Um, it's called Our Unfinished Past, the Oregon Historical Society at 125. And I like things that are kind of meta. So it's an exhibit about the history of the Oregon Historical Society. But of course, 
you'll get the whole story of Oregon and Portland and all sorts of other things along the way. It's not just them saying how great they are, though they are pretty great. Uh, so that's Megan will be joining us. Megan Lalier Barron will be joining us in the second half of the show. Uh, let's see. I think that's all I've got on my list of stuff. Kind of a historical weekend. I don't know if you're baseball fans, but the Mariners, I listened to it on the radio yesterday. What a great game. Almost as exciting as um, 1995. Almost as exciting, but not quite close. So we'll see what they do in the next series. And, uh, boy, what else is going on? Lots of other things. But anyway, let's see if we can get, uh, let's see if we can get Doug uh, Kank Crispin here on the phone with us. Doug, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. How are you doing? Oh, terrific. Hey, thank you so much for joining us on a Sunday evening like this. Um, I, you, you and bet. I, yeah, we talked a few times in the past. I think when I did a, a story for the other radio station that I work for about the uh, day called X, that uh, scary That's document. Right. We had, we talk, yeah, we talked about Operation Greenlight and uh, the joys of global thermonuclear war, right? Like yeah, the, yeah. It's, it was, the glass, glass is half full side of it. I yeah, guess. now the glass is just melted. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to get so dark all of a sudden on a Sunday night, I mean, because there's so many others. And I think the reason we did that story about A Day Called X was because, you know, all the scary things going on in the world <laughs> for the last mm-hmm, six mm-hmm. or seven months in particular. Um, That's right. But... I mean, the reason I reached out to you is because you, know, you have this website that's called what's orhistory.com. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And how? What? What? What do people find at that site? And how did you get it started in the first place? Uh, yeah. So, um, pretty much, I focus on Oregon history, and for some time, we can expand that out a little bit to the state of that's north of Oregon, of course, called uh, Washington. As mm-hmm. I'm originally from Spokane, that's how I always referred to it as a child. So, you know, we do have a few topics that kind of cross over the Columbia River, for example. You know, we look at, you know, the Whitmans and kind of, you know, was that, you know, kind of one of those questions of was that a massacre? Was that an incident? This kind of thing, you know, but kind of more kind of the Oregon territory at the time. Right. So we look at a lot of stories like that. We have a podcast there that people can find, you know, we do some kind of in-depth you know, blogs or articles or something like that. And kind of how that came to be was uh, when I was an uh, uh, undergrad student at Portland State University. I, was, I started school much later in life. But, you know, I, was, I started on this, on this bird app called Twitter. <laughs> and I really, so I kind of started it the other way. A lot of people use social media to promote their item. It was just kind of like I was on social media. I didn't really have anything to promote. So <laughs> you must have been the only. You must have been the only one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's back when they called it micro blogging, right? So I had a micro blog, <laughs> yet not a not a scout full size husky blog. So, um, so yeah, that's that's how orhistory.com kind of came to be, and it was going to be uh, book reviews and kind of things like that. You know, real real kind of more academic. But <laughs> as as time went on, you know, we discovered these these things called podcasts, were kind of like radio shows, but they lived on the computer. You know, and so uh, we kind of got into that realm, and and things kind of moved from there. So it was it was kind of the opposite the direction that a lot of people go. One, one thing that's pretty amazing, I think, around local history, regional history, um, and I talked about this a little bit last week with our guests. We had Clay Eels and Gene Sherrard. They're the two guys who have taken over Paul Dorpat's column, the Now and Then column in the Seattle Times, which is this fabulous photo feature that's been going for, I think, 40 years now. Paul did it for the first 37 years pretty much by himself. Anyway, and uh, social media in particular has let people 
it sort of leveled the playing field. I like when, you know, an institution like the Museum of History and Industry, where I used to work here in Seattle, they'll, they'll put up a picture of, I don't know, the bubbleator or the Space Needle or some, you know, some official photo from the 1962 World's Fair. And then, yeah. you know, people will comment like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I went there with my, with my dad or like, you know, I'm too, I, you know, I was yeah. born five years after the fair. But then people will post photographs of like, you know, here's, here's, here's me with my dad at the, at the, you know, at the Ferris wheel or whatever. And to get that dialogue back and forth of the institutional official stuff and the individual, you know, just organic stuff, everyone sharing their photos and their memories and everything. But when I worked at Mohai 20 years ago, we couldn't do that. We didn't have, you know, we had the internet, but we didn't have social media. So to see how fluid that is and the fact that someone like you with an idea and an interest can create content that before the internet, I mean, you might have been able to have a radio show or maybe a once a week feature on a, on a public yeah. radio station or something. But the fact you can churn out content whenever you want at whatever pace you want and connect directly with your, with the, with your audience, I think history is suited, fits that better than just about any other, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's some other, some other subject matters that, that mesh like that. But for some reason, local regional history, that kind of thing, the mesh between the audience and the people who know the stories and stuff it's just like off the charts for history more than anything else. I think I don't know. I don't know what's your experience with that. Am I am I getting too yeah. excited? No, no, I, I agree with you completely. You know, and I think that, that that's very true. That people kind of connect. You know, there's there's a group. I'm sure there's one in Seattle. There's a Facebook group called uh, Dead Memories Portland, right? And you see, you know, they'll they'll show an old building, like you said. And oh, you know, I used to I used to waitress there. I you know, my grandma, my grandpa, they met there. You know these these kind of really personal stories that people have with that. And of course, you know, with the, I, I, I think it's got like 160,000 followers. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. It tends to be a lot of boomers, you know, uh, on that specific group <laughs> is, is kind of what I've seen, you know, and, and the conversations can kind of, kind of devolve into, well, geez, downtown used to look so great. Everybody used to wear hats when they would yeah. go down there, yeah. you know, kind of thing. So it can devolve. So, yeah, no, I agree. There's really that connection, and there's the ability to really move it kind of past that, that, oh, you know, my, my grandma worked there, or, you know, oh, I used to go there for sodas. You know, and you can move it past that, and you can get into a larger discussion if, if the time is right, it kind of like the larger community, right, and what was going on there, and, and kind, of those, kind of those public history opportunities draw people a little bit further than just the, oh, I used to like that place. So, so yeah, I agree. I, yeah. I think that it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a good opportunity to connect with people, to build that relationship, to have a little bit of back and forth. But I look at it too, is how can we keep that individual engaged just a little bit more? And then ultimately what's happening is they're caring more about that place that they're in, right? Kind of, yeah kind of increasing that connection that's that's what i like to think at least oh yeah absolutely it, it, yeah, make, yeah. Make, making people kind of care a little bit more kind of helping in that process yeah i think place-based history does that and i think you know because i started working at the museum of history and industry in 1999 we mm -hmm. didn't we didn't even have email when i got there i had to go down the right. hall to the exhibit shop and like dial up america online to be able to send out email to people. i mean we were we were we were hurting in terms of digital stuff and you know, if, yeah. if we had a successful program, you know, 100 people would show up or a successful exhibit, you know, a few thousand people would walk through over, you know, a couple of weeks. And the idea yeah. was just the media part was so tantalizing, the idea of being able to reach an audience directly um, and be able to churn out our own content. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, obviously, I would have invented Facebook if I was if I was smart enough to think about it. Right, but I just right. remember feeling so helpless and like so dependent upon 
um, editorial, like, you know, and it was all relationship based. I was able to, you know, I connected with a lot of different reporters at the news, two newspapers we had in those days and the multiple radio stations doing local history stories and TV stations. And I had to sort of think like, okay, well, I've got this exhibit this Saturday. I'm going to pitch that one to this TV station. So they'll do a story and then I'll save the one for next week for that guy. And then I can sort of just hope that the story is getting out there because people were watching TV news or if we got on the front of the local section with, you know, some program about the great Seattle fire or something, then a bunch of people would show up because we, we were, because we didn't have any advertising budget. We were essentially powerless. So I, but I like what you're saying about sort of getting people to care more and getting people to engage. And I think, yeah, I see that here on the Seattle nostalgia sites where someone will say like, I don't go downtown anymore. You know, it's, 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 it's not, yeah. not the way it's not as nice as it was in the seventies or whatever, but, and, and that's just, there's always some percentage of that, but there is this sort of real sharing of real information and people who can go going deeper if they want to, or just looking at a pretty picture, if that's if that's an, if that's, yeah, if that's yeah. all you're I mean, looking for. Yeah, nothing wrong looking at old timey photos. I mean, I love it. I could do that all day long. You know, nothing wrong with that at all. But yeah, you know, if you get that opportunity, I I, I think it's it's uh, it would be a shame to kind of pass that up. You know, to really kind of draw folks along a little bit more. You know, and that's 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 where I really like to make that connection. You know, before the pandemic, you used to do a lot of walking tours in Portland, and so we'd walk around Old Town. You know, kind of. I guess kind of, you know, I've been on the Seattle underground tour, like kind of not as, as built up as that and kind of, you know, not as, not as marketed as that. A little, little bit grungier and that kind of thing. But still, we go out, we go on tours, get, get an opportunity to really connect and walk around these places and tell these stories. It's, it's a good experience to, to be able to kind of lead too strong of a term, but kind of facilitate that with folks, kind of help them. Because you can find, you can do that in many different areas, yeah. right? Yep. You know, you could volunteer at a church, washing homeless people's like laundry or something like that. That's that's building a connection with community as well, and that's that's getting connected with place. There's lots of different ways to do it, but it's nice to be able to do it to that history realm. And if it's old timey photos, that's great. Now, with those tours you used to lead before the pandemic of Portland, which I assume will be coming back sometime, what mm. give me a couple of like nuggets of stuff that you know people from Seattle might not know about Portland history because we have our little nuggets here about you know the underground and that stuff you just mentioned and you know the, yeah. the sidewalks being hidden below the surface or whatever and lots of tourists yeah. see that stuff too but are there some sort of you know misconceptions about Portland history that you can set the record on straight tonight for us? Yeah, you know, I mean, we get the whole like Shanghai Tunnel thing, you know, like that's that's the myth in Portland that's kind of persevered through the decades. So that's one that's pretty easy to shoot down, you know. I mean, Shanghai did occur, and I think people are familiar with that term, but if they're not, you know, that's the situation where a crimp, who is a professional, kind of like a headhunter, makes it his job to seduce the men belonging to another ship to his captain, who is paying him, right? To essentially get sailors to jump one ship and come on to another. So, you know, now sometimes that happens in a kind of bit more nefarious way. You know, you can't find enough able-bodied seamen that want to help out, you know, on, on your contract. And that's when you have to, you know, go meet a miner somewhere in a bar, or, you know, maybe maybe you meet a logger. One of the crimps used to say, sea air is great for loggers, you know, and just like <laughs> you do something kind of nefarious, maybe you hit them with a sap in the back of the head or, you know, you buy them a couple of drinks and pretty soon they stand up to go to the bathroom because they're not feeling so good. And they, they wake up on a bark outside of Astoria two days later with somebody getting, <laughs> kicking them in the ribs, like, get your butt to work, buddy, let's go. You know, like that kind of stuff did happen. But what developed in the 1970s and 1980s was kind of this, this false narrative of like that this occurred in kind of these these tunnels in quotes and again i've been on the seattle underground tour it 
people are listening to this program that haven't been on it, highly recommend it. Great yeah, time. Absolutely. But again, as you're walking along mm-hmm. under those sidewalks, like those are very kind of purposeful spaces that you're walking through, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing like that in Portland. So, you know, they take the real life Shanghai business that did happen to some degree, and they kind of move it to this like subterranean level when the reality was that Portland was such a wide open town. If there was a horse cart in front of a bar with like four passed out dudes inside of it <laughs> and it started like moving down towards the ship, nobody would have batted too high, you know, because it was just like, yeah, that's kind of the stuff that happened in this town. So, you know, getting an opportunity to kind of tell some of those stories, you know, it's, 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 um, it's a little bit because I've, I've read, you know, Sons of the Prophets and some of the other yeah, Seattle yeah. texts and so on. So, you know, it's a little bit different than that. But then again, I mean, they're both kind of boom towns, right? You know, Pacific Northwest boom towns, lots of logging going on, you know, lots of lots of resource extraction happening outside. It's very seasonal work, very manual work, you know, and you get guys that come into town and they go off to, to cut down some trees for six weeks and they come back with a bunch of cash and they want to spend it. And there's plenty of businesses that pop up to help them help them part with those hard-earned coins in their pocket, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in, in some ways, there's a lot of parallels between these two cities. But I think the difference with Portland is that the city council, the people that were really at the top of kind of the city politics, were also the landlords of these houses of ill, of Ill repute, right? So the bordellos and the bars and the card rooms and so on. So in terms of um, enforcement, in terms of justice, in terms of legislation, all of it kind of was really beneficial for the saloon interest in Portland. So it wasn't even like they pretended, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of like keep that section in what, you know, what we call Old Town, kind of Burnside area, you know, keep it all down there and, and, and you guys can go about your business kind of thing. No. So I guess that, you know, that's and that's kind of neat is actually taking those people around on that tour in old town, standing in front of those buildings, you know, kind of telling some of those classic stories, and and again, getting people to kind of kind of care about that neighborhood a yeah. bit more, you know. Now you also get out and around the entire Beaver State, right? Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. Is is there a favorite small town or small town that's underappreciated or that's kind of not as well known as it should be or could be that you could kind of let us in on the secret of that sort of maybe has, has changed less than other places or is kind of weird or sort of just, you know, worth worth, yeah, ma- worth making I mean, a detour to? Yeah, I mean, ask, if you're in the Portland area, Astoria is really, really uh, convenient. I mean, it's close. It's about an hour and a half away. Um, it's it's kind of, I, it has a little bit of a Lake Bellingham vibe going on, I think. Yeah, you I know? see why you say that. Yeah, uh, I agree, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, so that's, that's a real good town, just lots and lots of history. It hasn't really been built up much. They had they had a big fire there in the 1920s that wiped out a bunch of the town. So of course they built some brick, and you know fire, fire is like every town in the West had a great fire or many of them. You know, and Sastory had a couple. They really built up kind of after that fire. So the, the architecture is really kind of like 1920s, early 1930s. So it's a great little downtown area. You can just kind of walk around and just kind of take a view of of, of what's going on there. Kind of a little further afield if you start to head out to eastern Oregon. Um, I really like Baker or it's called Baker City. Um, and that was a mining that was a mining town in the sense that that's where the financial transactions of the mining reached 
perfect place, right? So that's where all the gold would be brought and you'd kind of weigh it out. And that's where you'd come and buy everything. So kind of the, the town kind of built up around that. And so it's got a very, uh, a very characteristic downtown as well that seems like it's kind of stuck in time, which, <laughs> of course, those of us that are geeked out on history, we love nothing more than that. So I, I think those would be two that would be really good. In terms of like the real raw nature of Oregon, I really like southeastern Oregon. The Alvord Desert hmm. is the area that it's called. It's the big playa. So, you know, it is a lake, but there's not often a lot of water in it. And um, there's some natural hot springs that happen down there. But it, it looks so weird compared to, <laughs> you know, what we are used to in Seattle and Portland, kind of the real forested area kind of at times it feels like it's borderline rainforest even though we know that it's not but rainforest is very close but you know what i mean mm -hmm. just these very lush forests and then you go to in the same state to this like crazy almost outer space looking desert area so i i really kind of dig those spots and it's pretty steeped in history as well too yeah. so I, I think those would be yeah, I so I recently did the drive around Mount Hood um, for the first time. Oh, that's the, the whole loop up around through Government Camp and then down into the yeah. valley there at the Hood River and everything. And just, yeah. why, what a, I mean, it feels like you're actually driving across the slope of the mountain. That highway is so far up up along the side, and you're so yeah. so different from Mount Rainier or, or Mount St. Helens or Mount Bakery even yeah. in terms of, like, feeling like you're just, it's like you're, you're literally driving on the volcano with your car. It's really a, and a yeah. cool yeah. experience. And then coming down out of the mountains, um, just coming down toward Hood River, as you go north, you get this really bizarre, amazing view of Mount Adams that I don't recall ever seeing before. And it's like it's like this forgotten volcano that nobody even knows is there. Anyway, yeah, it's yeah. just a, it, now now with the with the podcast. What's a typical episode of, uh, or what do you have a favorite episode, or what's a good episode? People have never heard the podcast before. Is there an episode you recommend them starting with? Yeah, let me think about that. That's a really good question. Um, I I like kind of like the great flood of 1894 which you know like many towns in the west we had a flooding up uh, situation so uh, the willamette rose 33 feet above uh high water mark and that was just kind of due to rain and that sort of thing it wasn't like a dam burst or anything so slow gradual rise of the water and just kind of how people negotiated around that um so that's a really fun one that i liked it it, it is good kind of general general history of portland area that people could get into um we also you know people are into films we've done one on um the the paul newman film sometimes a great notion oh, which we kind of yeah. built like an audio tour kind of going around and looking at spots um we did another one on paint your wagon okay. which is <laughs> that's really a, bad that's a clint, clint eastwood film. musical right yeah, Clint Eastwood musical with Lee Marvin in it too. <laughs> Wait, go, you know, go, like the, the, the two men that probably sing the worst on earth at that moment. Wow. Wait, go back to so, uh, sometimes a great notion for a second. Where was the bulk yeah. of that film actually shot? Yeah, uh, that was shot in the Newport area, Newport, Oregon. Okay, kind that's of right. around out on there. the coastal logging yeah, areas. That's so, right. That's you know, a great which, movie. Yeah, yeah, it is. And you know, the book, of course, talks about the the the. Uh, the constant northwest rain you know key yeah. goes on for pages and pages about the rain but they filmed sometimes a great notion in, in newport in the summer in like one of the actually like warmest sunniest summers ever so i don't think there's <laughs> any rain in that whole movie which is, is kind of a fun spot so 
Yeah, people listen to that. And then if people are, you know, if people are tourists and they come to Portland and that kind of thing, we have a walking tour of West Burnside. That people, it's called the Rock and Roll Burnside Walking Tours. People can put in their earbuds and kind of walk around. And we talk about the Satyricon, which I'm oh, sure a lot of people yeah. are familiar with. Yep, yep. And, you know, um, different clubs on Burnside, Mary's Club, and, you know, uh, which is a kind of a classic uh, strip club in Portland. And, <laughs> other places so um actually courtney love danced at uh, mary's for a little while so it's worthwhile for people to give a stop at and yeah so um those those would be kind of a couple of the greatest hits that i'd steer people towards all right now sir current events question then i'll I'll let you go this will be the kind of final question for the evening tonight now whenever i go down to oregon i you know i love go to powell's of course i love to go out to the coast we you know we spend a lot of time in you know different parts of the state but I'm always trying to figure out as we're driving across the bridge, the crossing at the Columbia there, or you know, out toward Longview, some of the other crossings, or even over yeah. at Astoria. What's the? Is there a difference in the character of Oregon and Washington? I mean, we're all old Oregon country. Before they started, you know, the settlers wanted their own government north of the Columbia. We were all the, under the same, you know, provisional government and the same U.S. territory and everything. And but then Oregon got it became a state 30 years before Washington did. Had all yeah. this sort of like you know. Banned, uh, banned black people by the state constitution, yeah. too. I mean, did some really yeah. bizarre stuff that Washington never yeah. did. Is yeah. there anything that plays out, you know, 150 years later? What are the differences between now? Or is, it, is that border still kind of just a, you know, a formality between Oregon and Washington? Well, that's a good question. And it's one I haven't thought a lot about. So I don't know if I'm going to give the best answers. You know, <laughs> but just kind of mulling it over. I do, I do think there is a difference. Now, the, the other thing... Another similarity, I would say, too, is like if you look at I-5 Washington and I-5 Oregon, yeah. it's very different from the rest of the state, right? Like, like uh, as, as I said at the beginning of, the, of this session, you know, I, I grew up in Spokane, Washington. I, li- I lived there until I was 12 years old, and my folks moved to Portland. And, of course, I would go back and visit my grandparents and that kind of thing. But I think that, like, eastern Washington and northern Idaho kind of seems more similar than, say, you know, than Seattle. I mean, it seemed like a very different state. And I think we see the same here in Oregon, where, like, the eastern section wants to join, like, this greater Idaho thing that, you yeah, know, some people have right. been talking about, which I don't, I don't even quite follow, to be honest. And, like, you know, so, you know, but some of that kind of Jefferson County stuff, too. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think there is, I think there is a difference. And I don't know if it's, as simple as taxation, you know, I mean, with the sales tax versus down here with the crazy property tax and income tax we have. That's right. I know that, like, the highway thing in Washington, like, didn't go through a little while ago, and that's definitely causing some budgetary issues and so on. So I, I, I don't quite, I don't have a good way to put a finger on it. But, you know, like, if you go up to... Um, even to like around the Olympic Peninsula area, you know, like kind of around like um, Hoodsport and that kind of thing. Like those are real life, like logging town. It feels like, you know, kind of the move to tourism has happened somewhat, but mm-hmm. not fully embraced and so on. So I think there's a lot of similarities, maybe more in the rural areas between the two states. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in the urban areas too, there's, there's some difference. So, I don't know. That's, that's, that's a very good question. I, I think that's worthy to mull over. Maybe the next time we chat, I'll have a, I'll have a better answer. <laughs> I mean, I mean, what, what do you think? You, you, pull, you pose the question. You, you, I, you, said, you, 
you've been down here quite a bit, like down here, like, you know, the 180 yeah. miles were so far. Well, I think, you know. I think that 30-year head start, 1859, mm-hmm. Oregon becomes a state. 1889, Washington becomes a state. So you guys have two senators. You have actual voting representatives in Congress for 30 years before we do. So yeah. Oregon is more tapped into to pork. Oregon's more tapped into being part of the union. Where, you know, being yeah. Washington Territory, we had one representative in Congress who doesn't even get to vote. And we're, you know, a lot of federal, um, using a lot of federal dollars for stuff like uh, federal marshal. And yeah. there's just, there isn't the statewide infrastructure that's developing the way you guys are 30 years ahead of us. And so in some ways, Oregon, in my mind, is a little more 19th century than Washington. Washington sort of is more 20th century. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I don't know if that explains why we had Boeing, why we had Microsoft. I don't think it necessarily does. But it does, I think, that 30-year leap on being an actual state and not just a territory that there's further examination required. That's my crackpot theory, yeah. anyway. I haven't. Yeah. I'm sure someone's done a thesis about. it. I haven't tracked it down. Yeah, but that's, that's my crackpot well, theory. Well, yeah, maybe you and I should work on this project at some point. Yeah, because we, uh, we can we can come out with some 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 different thoughts. Because I'm sure people will be riveted by what we have to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Doug Kent Crispin, what's the best way people can get in touch with you and kind of follow you and get your podcast, all this stuff? Where should people go? Yeah, I'd say uh, orhistory.com. The website would be the way to do it. I'm kind of more on Twitter than other places. It's it's a dark place, I know, <laughs> but I try to make it a little a little happier, a little funner, a little funnier. So that's Oregon <laughs> underscore history is where I am there. And yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to come in and chat with my friends in Seattle, and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to connect soon. Right on. We'll definitely have you back again. Thanks, Doug King Christman with OrHistory.com and the Kick-Ass Oregon History Podcast. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. All right. Well, we're going to get into our vintage audio now. I have the uh, episode two of End of the Oregon Trail from the Olympia Brewing Company, 1946. (laughs) Somebody had to be first. And so they gathered at Independence, Missouri, dressed in calico and deerskin, outfitted for the hazardous trip, each with his own individual vision. A home, happiness, a place to take root and grow, a place for spiritual independence. And at last they were ready to go. Keep the wagons in line there. Keep them in line. Okay. Where the dickens is that Sam Crockett? He's holding us up. There he comes now, Colonel. You want me, Colonel Simmons? Sam Crockett, you're holding the whole line up. Sorry, Colonel. I was just having a little argument with Jones over there in the hardware store. Yeah? Yeah. He says to me, you'll never make it to Oregon. I says to him, we will. He says to me, for how much? And I says for a brand new hickory shirt. <laughs> what you laughing for, Sam? Uh, what he don't know is, case we have to turn back, I'll go through this town so fast, he'll have to chase me clear to St. Louis to collect. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sam, get into your wagon. We're shoving off. And we're not stopping till we hit the Columbia River. On your way!
Reckon I got a dream I have. Reckon I got a dream I have. And I'm going to Oregon to find it there with a heart full of hope and never a care. But there were troubles and cares, and plenty of them. And the promised land seemed far away in miles and miles of trackless wastes. And the crunch of the wagon wheel as it turned in dust was endless. And the months grew, but the trek continued, steady, grueling, never-ending. And were you there in the dark of night, and the wagons drawn up, and with perhaps only the flicker of a wood fire, you would have bowed your head with the others and waited quietly and listened. Our Father in heaven, who has given us the vision of new land and home, protect us, we beseech thee. Guide us with thy wisdom and grant us thy courage to continue. Amen. And then finally, that day, that great day, and the sound of a triumphant voice. There it is! There it is! We've reached the Columbia River! Oh my goodness, they reached the Columbia River. What a perfect place for a cliffhanger. That was episode two of End of the Oregon Trail, an advertorial uh, production from 1946, marking 50 years of the Olympia, Olympia, no, Olympia, there's no R in Olympia, Olympia Brewery with uh, William Conrad doing the narrating and some really highfalutin Hollywood production values there. So uh, if I remember, we'll hear episode three next week. Um, All right, well, uh, joining us in just a moment is our Next guest here on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. I'm Felix Bunnell. We're here till 9 o'clock. We're the only live radio show about Pacific Northwest history anywhere. All right, let's see if we can get Megan Lalier on the phone. Megan, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, wonderful. You're on the air with Space 101.1 FM and Cascade of History. This is Megan. Oh. Hey, <laughs> how are you doing? <laughs> Good. How are you? Uh, very good. I, I really appreciate you joining us on a Sunday night. I know, as I've, I say over and over again, it's not the most convenient time for our guests, but it's great for our audience. They, we love to talk about Northwest history on a Sunday evening. It's a perfect time of the week to do it. So you're Megan Lalier Barron. You're the curator of exhibitions at the Oregon Historical Society. And the reason I wanted to have you come on was I know you're working on an exhibit that's going to premiere next year that's about the 125th birthday or anniversary of the Oregon Historical Society. Right. Yes. So, yes, that's correct. So, I mean, is it what's the exhibit about a historical society? Is it going to be just a lot of like documents and things, or is it? I mean, what what are people going to see? Can you give us a preview of what people might see and what the story is you're trying to tell for that 125 years? Sure. Um, we really wanted to um, frame the exhibition um, through our own collections. So, being able to tell the history of the organization. Um, through what we've collected over 125 years. Um, so there's certainly a lot of um, documents and objects that are in our collection, um, but we've tried to frame it in a way that um, has showed how we've sort of changed and, and grown over time. Now, are there some, uh, I mean, are there some sort of like surprises or what, in, in going through the collection, I assume you had to go through a, a database and sort of do a lot of searching and try to figure out how to best tell the story, but were there some surprises or artifacts that will 
surprise people that are be in this show? Yeah, so we, um, our collection is, is pretty big. Um, the museum collection alone is 75,000 objects. Um, so it was an interesting um, challenge to figure out exactly how we wanted to tell the story um, in our, our space is relatively large. So the exhibition space is about 2,500 square feet. Um, so it seems like it would be a lot of space to tell the story. Um, but we have, we have a lot of odd shaped objects. Um, so tr- trying to get everything to fit in was, was kind of challenging. Um, but I think there, um, I'm hoping that we have some things that people um, might expect when they come to see um, a, a sort of retrospective um, of the history of OHS. Um, but then I think there are a few things that um, often don't get shown in an exhibition oh, good. Um, or are seen very rarely. Um, so we have um, kind of a wide variety of media, everything from photographs and documents to objects. We also have, um, we're also featuring some things from our film archive that often um, some pieces that haven't been shown before. So we're pretty excited about it. And for people who don't know, the Oregon Historical Society, you guys are right there in Portland. You have a big facility there. But I know you do programs all over the state. But I, I admit, I don't know the, the origin story. Is there, a, is there a short version of how you guys came to be founded 124, almost 125 years ago? Um. Yeah, so we were founded on December 17th, 1898 um, in um, rooms in the in the library in Portland. <laughs> um, there were a number of individuals um, who were um, pretty big leaders um, in Portland and in the state at large who were interested in preserving um, Oregon's history. So they um, sort of met, founded this organization, um, and then started um, collecting and um, providing um, services for the community, whether that's through um, opening a museum to also um, having a pretty strong archive and library and having yeah. people be able to research. And I, I envy what you guys have there because I, I'm, you know, I'm in Seattle. I worked at the Museum of History and Industry for about seven years. I think I left there about 15 years ago. But, you know, we're, we were the, officially we're the Historical Society of Seattle and King County. There's a whole other organization down in Tacoma, the State Historical Society. And we were sort of in, in competition in terms of collecting and, you know, having a, two big cities like Seattle and Tacoma near each other sort of competing for the same collections and the same artifacts. And I guess it's maybe it's good in the long run, but I've always envied what Oregon has with a single large institution based in Portland. It's almost like the way Oregon public broadcasting is too, where there's just this, there's one authority kind of, and you guys have been publishing wonderful books for a long time, a great website, a great Oregon uh, encyclopedia, that the online history presence. You guys, and the journal you guys put out, I mean, you sort of have the whole package there. I, I really envy that. I think that's, it's, I know it didn't just randomly come together. I know that's taken, you know, more than a century of people working thoughtfully and raising the money necessary and having really high standards. So I, I, I love what you guys do. It's I'm very excited, very excited to see this exhibit next year. And I, one question I had for you is kind of, it's kind of a, a bigger question is, do you think, I mean, how would this exhibit have been different? Had we not had, you know, hashtag me too, black lives matter, the, the, you know, the pandemic, all the unrest in Portland and all over the, you know, other parts of the country as well. But it seems like museums, uh, organizations that think about history and that collect history, 
in diverse communities have really changed how they're telling stories and who are in the stories. Do you think, I mean, what would have been different or what's different about this effort now based on the turmoil and the, and the changes and the, you know, the good things in the last two, three years, let's say? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, I think what we tried to do in the exhibition is kind of, um, in one way, show how we started and the Oregon Historical Society definitely started uh, as an organization that was very pioneer focused. Yeah. Um, and, and really tried to collect stories of, um, of pioneer families, of telling a narrative that was very focused on um, particular legacy of, of white and Euro-American settlers. Um, I think over time, and I think we have been doing a lot more work within the last um, decade uh, to two decades, but I think that we um, have, have started a trend to look at whose stories are we collecting? What, what narrative are we um, showing about Oregon's history in the materials that we've collected? And who are we, who's missing from that narrative? Um, and then kind of looking at, you know, what those missing pieces are and trying to be more inclusive um, in our telling of Oregon's history. So instead of just one viewpoint, recognizing that there are many ways to look at Oregon's history and how um, a particular event can be seen from multiple perspectives. See. So I think that. Oh, you know, say that's just that's just exciting to me. That's such an exciting time because I think um, I mean, not that I don't think I think OHS, I think MOHI, I think the Washington State Historical Society. Those are the two organizations I've had the most, you know, the two here in Washington I've had the most direct contact with. I think all along in the time I've been involved, which is going back like 25 years, they've had this um, commitment to telling the different stories and not just being about the old white people who found in many cases founded the organization, you know, 100 years ago or whatever. So there's been this sort of, I mean, it's it's not like it's been this sort of calcified, you know, pioneer spirit sort of thing. It's been it's been open and transparent. And they've tried to be inclusive, but I think the the momentum is so much faster and stronger now, and it's sort of I envy it. Um, I mean, I'm excited about it, but I also don't envy you guys because you still have to pick artifacts and you still have this limited amount of space, limited attention span of most people walking through a room to try to tell a narrative arc. And I mean, some of those oversimplified pioneer narratives are oversimplified because that's kind of somewhat, it's sort of not the only way you can tell the story, but it's sort of the only way you can tell the story for a, an audience that's sort of distracted and walking through with their kids. I mean, it's, but I guess it's, it's exciting. And it's also challenging too, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, uh, it's definitely challenging, but I think that's, <laughs> I think that's one of the um, parts of my job that I really enjoy the most, being able to, um, it's kind of like an elaborate puzzle. How do you, how do you get people to um, learn about and understand some really complex topics in a very um, sort of narrow way? Right. With, with that sort of limited size and, and objects that you can put in a, in a space. Very exciting. Um, Very exciting. I can't wait to see the exhibit. Yeah. So um, tell me the name of the exhibit and when it opens. Um, so the name of the exhibit is Our Unfinished Past, the Oregon Historical Society at 125. 
and it officially opens January 13th, 2023. So that's coming right up in museum time. <laughs> that's like tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, um, we start um, installing the exhibit the first part of December, Great. Um, which seems like it's far away, but also not at all. Yeah. Well, exciting. I'm looking forward to coming down and seeing it. Um, Megan Lalier Barron, the curator of exhibitions for the Oregon Historical Society. Oregon- I'm having a hard time speaking tonight. I'm sorry. Oregon Historical Society, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History, and we'll hopefully have you back sometime in 2023 and hear more about the 125th anniversary of the Oregon Historical Society. Thank you very much for having me. Good night. So long. All right. That was Megan Lalier Barron. She's a curator of exhibitions for the Oregon Historical Society, and their exhibit does open next year. All right. I have one little piece of audio I want to play for you. This is uh, still in our Oregon mode here, and then we're going to be joined by a special guest and have a little bit of a conversation about uh, Indigenous Peoples Day tomorrow. Um, this is a little highlight from KGW, Portland radio station, uh, their coverage of the Columbus Day storm 60 years ago this Wednesday. Seattle, Washington, south-southwest 35 with gusts to 45, Boeing Field gusts to 45 also in Seattle, Eugene now southeast 10 miles an hour, and Bellingham, as we said, gusts up to 92 miles an hour. The Victoria area now has gusts, uh, winds from the east 56 miles an hour, and the gusts are not reported. We would expect that they would have considerable wind up in that area right now, but definitely the winds have dropped over Oregon, and there's no sign of any recurrence. It looks as though the big wind the storm of this Friday night is finally passing to the north. Well, thank you very much, Jack Capel. And that just about sums it up here from KGW Radio. The time right now at about 19 minutes past 1 a.m. on a Saturday morning. And it's uh, Saturday the 13th. And with that encouraging report, Jack, I think we'll wrap it up here for our emergency service. Our uh, candles are burning low and the Coleman lantern is still going. And as we wrap it up here, one final reminder that the uh, scented candle shop on North Lombard in Portland will be open all night tonight. This is KGW Radio 620, first on the dial in Portland, operating on an assigned frequency of 620. Ladies and gentlemen, KGW Radio's manager, Mr. Pat Crafton. This has been the story of October 12, just as it was. A destructive blow of nature which brought with it death, injury, damage, and a rude change of existence for thousands and thousands of us in Oregon and Washington. The loss of 21 lives was tragic indeed, but it could have been many times worse had it not been for warnings and advice given by responsible officials and a responsive citizenry which remained calm in the face of potential panic. Many lives were most certainly saved by the help which came through that instantaneous and reliable marvel of communication, radio. What was done by radio that Friday night of October 12 and the following days of recovery was what you have every right to expect of us. But there are lessons to be learned for the future. No transmitter can be of value to you unless you have a receiver to remain in touch with your fellow human beings, to know what is going on and where your help is needed to aid those less fortunate than yourselves, or merely to follow instructions and thereby minimize confusion and tragedy. The role of the portable transistor radio receiver certainly became an extremely important one. It became the link to reassurance and vital information, 
Certainly now it should be apparent to all that no family or single individual should be without a transistor in working order. Similarly, the radios in our cars must be kept in working order because many of us will again be caught on the road. In time of need, radio will be there again to give immediate help when you need it. But you must be able to listen if radio is to work for you. Now, I would like to express our heartfelt appreciation to all of you who helped us at KGW. The many public officials, the police and fire departments throughout our listening area, the ham radio operators and many others too numerous to name. But particularly we want to thank you, our listeners, who were tuned to KGW the night of the terrible 12th. Thank you for helping us and thank you for your many heartwarming letters and calls which have poured into the station these past few days. It has been our privilege to serve you. Thank you and good night from all of us at KGW Radio. Yes, so short version of that is get a radio and keep it turned on all the time. That's I like I like how much they really go in on the the radio is your savior during a big storm like that big windstorm, one of the lowest uh, barometric pressures and biggest and most destructive windstorms ever hit the Northwest, starting in Northern California all the way into British Columbia 60 years ago this coming Wednesday. Now that holiday was called Columbus Day, still called Columbus Day in some parts of the country. But here in, uh, there's a federal holiday tomorrow. It's the second one. It's the Indigenous Peoples Day. And we are joined by Ken Workman. Ken, can you hear me? I sure can. Wonderful. Ken is a Duwamish tribal council member, and he's a descendant of Chief Seattle. And I reached out to him earlier today to see if we could talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous Peoples Day tomorrow. And um, as as a descendant of Chief Seattle and a member of the Duwamish tribal council, what... uh, what should people be thinking about? What, what's what's a good thing? Or what, what are some things to consider on Indigenous Peoples Day in, in Seattle or in the Pacific Northwest? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so really when I'm thinking about Indigenous Peoples Day, which used to be Columbus Day, it was when this guy from Europe sailed over across uh, the Atlantic and he discovered this place, or so-called discovered, and then... <laughs> You know, and he said, "Hey, there's this all this land over here, and and there's these strange people." And so from that day forward, we as Native people, well, we weren't really treated so very well. So with regard to Indigenous Peoples Day, um, we are starting to come back to be recognized and be appreciated as as equal people to everybody else. And I say that because. Um, in uh, 1776, it's the Declaration of Independence, where there's a phrase in there that talks about the uh, merciless Indian savages. And I don't think that's who we are. So I'd like people to think that we're just like everybody else. I, you know, I'm, I'm, this is, maybe this sounds dumb. I'm kind of, I'm jealous of, of you to have such a long history in this area. Like my parents came to Seattle in 1959. They'd escaped from Europe after World War II and sort of made a new life for themselves in New York and California, then came up here, and not a day goes by that I don't, you know, thank God for them choosing to settle in Seattle. I love it here. But, but here's a dumb question. What's it like to be, what's it feel like to know, to walk the streets of Seattle, to know the city is named after one of your ancestors, and that you have family history here, here going back time immemorial? Is that, this is a dumb question to ask what that feels like? Well, no, it's not a dumb question, and I can answer it. It, it doesn't feel strange. It doesn't feel any different. I, there's 
not like I have this great sense of pride about it. It's just something that, that happened, and it was the white settlers that did it at the time. When I say white, I mean the, the colonists. Yeah. And, and Felix, you have to know that we don't do that. You don't name places <laughs> after a bad thing. <laughs> Because yeah, because isn't there? I mean, didn't didn't Chief Seattle famously? I mean, he did. He wasn't that happy about that. No, no, <laughs> it goes to our religion. <laughs> so, so, so when, go ahead. When I talk that, really, what we're talking about is, um, and our beliefs out here as Native Americans, well, in this local vicinity. Uh, we believe in a reincarnation, very much like the Hindus do, except, you know, we have our own little twist on it. And so really what we're trying to do is when somebody passes, we're trying to help people forget that, and specifically descendants of the person that passed. And so by naming the city after this person, my grandfather, my great-great-great-great-grandfather, well, he's causing that memory not to go away. And as soon as his memory goes away in one of his descendants, that enables him to come back, he or she or whatever. So this is our sense of reincarnation out here. And how come he was upset when they named the city? Wow. So, okay, so then to, to extrapolate then, so the soul of Chief Seattle, you're saying, won't be able to be reincarnated until that name is never uttered again? No, that's a good question. Wow. Because okay. <laughs> utter the name, and some person that's not a, a direct descendant can utter the name. And that's fine. But our particular twist on it is a descendant. Got you it. You can only in a descendant. Okay. All right. Um, just have a couple minutes here left, but um, are there other are there misconceptions about um, indigenous people in Seattle? that you see sort of perpetuated by, you know, well-meaning but, you know, misguided media people like me or museums or, or tourist-type things? Are, are there misconceptions that at least one or maybe maybe one that we could try to set people straight on tonight? Uh, sure. And it has to do with uh, a stereotype. Not everybody has long hair and not everybody has dark skin. And that I like to say that uh, we're modern Indians and we fit into society just like everybody else. And so there isn't any difference between me, Felix, and you having your your parents move out here in the 50s. It's just that my DNA chain is longer than yours. We're still the same mayor. We're still part of the same city. Yeah, yeah. And that's great. And that's... I mean, we, we spoke earlier with the uh, curator at the Oregon Historical Society. They're working on an exhibit for their 125th anniversary for next year. And I asked the, this, this um, Megan Lalier Barron about, you know, how her job in putting together this exhibit has changed in the wake of Me Too and Black Lives Matter and, you know, the pandemic and everything. And, you know, it, things are sort of busting wide open in terms of, I think, telling all the stories. And I just, I... I sort of drool when I think about the stories that have yet to be told properly that can become as mythical, not not mythical meaning false, but mythical meaning part of the, the natural sort of regional mythology that have yet to be told about indigenous people in Seattle that and in the whole Northwest, that I hope those stories in this new world of kind of more inclusiveness, kind of telling everyone's stories, that we hear more of those and learn more of those because I just I, it makes me love this area even more to know 
about what's happened here in the past and, you know, in the past before any Europeans arrived. And that would be a, a good day indeed. And we're starting to we're starting to bring our stories out. You know, life hasn't been easy for us. And so a lot of our people actually went to their grave carrying these stories with them. It, life was hard. And so um, if we can bring these stories out and you as historians especially know that the undocumented history of America or the undocumented history of a civilization. And so we're starting to bring them out, Felix, and, and that'll be a good day. Let's have you back again on the show sometime and let's let's keep this conversation going because I just I, I covet the stories. I want to hear them. And I just I, I I'm happy to be living. So glad my parents chose Seattle to live in and honor and respect the Duwamish and all the work you guys have done and anything we can do to help tell those stories. I mean, it's just we're all Seattleites and let's let's do it. So Ken Workman, um, is it I mean, this is dumb. Is it appropriate for me to say have a happy Indigenous Peoples Day or is that am I just saying a dumb thing right now? No, no, I appreciate the, the kind thought, and let's have a happy Indigenous People Day. Right on. Hey, thanks for making time to talk to us tonight on Cascade of History. That's Ken Workman, du- Duwamish Tribal Council member and descendant of Chief Seattle. Ken, have a good night. Okay, thank you. All right, well, that's going to bring our uh, fifth episode of Cascade of History with Felix Bunnell. That's me on uh, Space 101.1 FM to a close. Uh, we'll be back next week, of course, Sunday night, every Sunday night. We're here at uh, 8 o'clock from 8 to 9 Pacific time. You can tune us in on 101.1 FM or you can stream us anywhere at space101fm.org. Go to that website too, space101fm.org. There's all kinds of stuff uh, about the station, ways you can support it, ways you can find out about the other programs that happen here all the time and the great music that plays. Um, it's a really cool resource. And I don't think I've mentioned, I, I like to mention this in every show, I'm in the old, I think it's the sergeant-at-arms quarters above the gate of the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station. This place is just dripping with history. I couldn't think of a better place to sit on a Sunday night to talk with you, talk with our fabulous guests. I want to thank Doug Kank Crispin from OrHistory.com and Kick-Ass Oregon History Podcast and Megan Lalier Barron, the uh, curator at the Oregon Historical Society, and Ken Workman from the Duwamish Tribal Council. Um, you can also send email to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com if you have ideas for guests or topics or anything like that. And we have a Facebook page. There's a Twitter account to follow. We're sort of gradually uh, ramping up our social media presence. But until next week, I'm Felix Bunnell for Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it, that's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.